0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. She's a clinical psychologist who has practiced for over 26 years. She is awesome. We did a Facebook Live in um, conjunction with this podcast recording. So if it's a little more cash than usual at the intro, that's because I was trying to fumble and figure out Facebook. But hopefully that will allow it to reach more people because we talked about really important stuff today. And there is a warning. We do talk about depression, um, suicide and that kind of, um, you know, theme. So I definitely want to make sure going into this that you know that that's the topic. If you have kiddos in the car, um, you know, choose wisely. You're the parent, you decide. But um, yeah, it's just that's that's the warning. So um, Dr. Rutherford is very compassionate and common sense. And her work is just So powerful, and it is what we need in this time, and it's what we need in any time, really. So you can follow her at DrMargaretRutherford.com, and her new book is what we talk about, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfection that Masks Your Depression, and that is a big topic for sure. So enjoy this episode with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Hi, and welcome to The Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense, so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. All right, I think we are live. Let me see. I think we are. We are. Look, hello, everyone. Welcome. We're trying something new today. (laughs) We're streaming live on Facebook and I'm recording for the same 24 hours podcast. So Dr. Margaret Rutherford is here. Hello, doctor.
1: How are you? Hi, thank you. And please call me Margaret. I get to call you Meredith. So
0: (laughs) well, and if you like, you can call me Margaret too, because apparently a lot of people like to call me Margaret. (laughs) Really? Yeah. I think it's because of Atwood and you know, they say Margaret Atwood and I'm like, yeah, not that Atwood.
1: Yeah, people get disappointed that I'm not Dame Margaret Rutherford, you know, that I'm not the (laughs) London actress. Someone actually texted me or something. Oh, sorry, I thought you were the actress. (laughs) No, no, she's a little older than I am. We have that in
0: common. We have that in common. That's awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for joining. And I think your, um, your book and your work is so perfectly timed with not only 2020, but just, you know, the decade and world we're living in. So, Let's jump right in and tell us what perfectly hidden depression is.
1: Sure, of course. Well, I've been a psychologist for now, oh my gosh, in private practice for about 28 years. So I didn't start blogging though until about eight years ago. And um, so I was usually just coming up with my weekly blog post about hither, thither and yon. And I started thinking about some people that I had seen in the past that just didn't present with normal looking depression. In fact, they would adamantly deny that they were depressed at all. They would tell me they had too many blessings in their lives and, mm. you know, they they never felt bad and they were happy and they were busy and they were engaged and they had friends And and depressed people were anxious or melancholy or whatever. And so, you know, I, after working with them for a while in fact, there was a very dramatic example of a person that I had basically diagnosed with anxiety and i'm not going to tell the story but basically i actually went to her house and found her trying to die by suicide which is highly unusual by the way i don't go into people's homes very often <laughs> yeah
0: there's uh, that there's that, not there's the, that side not note the, yeah
1: i'm not the superwoman of psychology but anyway but there were many people like her and what i began to figure out was that there would be this veneer or facade of really everything being fine and yet they would when I when they asked stories uh, when I asked excuse me when they answered questions about their histories it was like oh well yeah, okay I guess you know there's this one thing that happened I was raped before I went to college but you know that was a long time ago and literally I'm looking like they were looking it was as if they were describing to me what they had for lunch rather than this horrible tragic event and so I decided to write about these people because there had been quite a few. And literally, Meredith, I just grabbed the term perfectly hidden depression. It made sense to me. Well, that post called the perfectly hidden depressed person, or you one, went viral. And at the time, I was, I was uh, writing for the Huffington Post. And when it appeared there, I had forgotten that I had left my email on the bottom of the post <laughs> when he, not, not good
0: you won't make that but, mistake again <laughs> no
1: but I literally got hundreds of emails this is me it's like you're in my head how did you figure this out and so I started looking I thought well you know what's this about and of course I found Dr. Brene Brown's work who talks about perfectionism and vulnerability and and shame. And that's incredibly wonderful work. There was a book by Terence real written for men and it's still very popular now. It's called I don't want to talk about it. Excellent book, by the way, but nobody connected perfectionism with just depression. And I thought, wait a minute. And so then I started looking at the research there were there were questionnaire books or there were workbooks about how to not be a perfectionist anymore, but I didn't see anybody talking about how you become a perfectionist, why mm. you become a perfectionist. So I'd never wanted to write a book. I had no plans to write a book. I was a happy therapist, but I decided I'd jump in the deep end and try my hand at writing it. And then five years later, it actually was published by New Harbinger. And I have been learning so much more and so many people contact me from all over the world. They've read the books, they've read my blog posts, they've listened to my podcast or whatever. And I'm hearing more and more how deeply it is affecting the people that identify with it.
0: So you you mentioned perfectionism and that we don't really most people don't understand where it comes from or what it actually is. So let's go backwards and dive into that a little bit. What is perfectionism? Where does it come from sure. and and how does this kind of segue into this form of depression?
1: Sure. Of course. Great question. You know, a lot of people say, what's wrong with perfectionism? It's striving for excellence. It's really wanting to do your best. It's trying to do your best. It's it's being competitive because you feel competitive and it brings you joy and fulfillment. That's wonderful. But it also has this element that's called or this uh, dichotomy that's called destructive perfectionism. And that's what's being studied Um, It is meaning, it means that you are constantly trying to meet the expectations of other people over which you have no control. The perfectionist. I
0: have a question here. Do they even know you have these expectations?
1: Sometimes, yes. Sometimes it's work, but no, sometimes not. Sometimes you are, you're assuming expectations that are just, this is what the perfect friend does. This is what the perfect coworker does. This is what the perfect lawyer does or the the perfect psychologist does. And so you are projecting what you believe will please them. It's actually Mm -hmm. called socially prescribed perfectionism by the researchers. Uh And it is the most dangerous kind of perfectionism. You can have self-oriented perfectionism where you just... expect perfectionism for yourself. You can have other oriented, which means you want everybody else around you to be perfect. You're probably not a very pleasant person to be around. And then there's these socially prescribed perfectionists who are constantly on this treadmill, a wonderful researcher out of Canada. i can't talk this afternoon. Dr. Gordon Flett says it's like the more you do, the more you have to do. You are constantly on this treadmill. And so, and you don't know how to get off. Um, and that is a huge, huge factor in perfectly hidden depression, because that's the kind of perfectionism that these people constantly feel this shame and fear goading them. You're, you won't be enough if you don't get this done. You, you couldn't have done this anyway. Who do you think you are trying to write this book? Who do you think you are trying to do a podcast? And you are filled with self-criticism and self-loathing and shame that is fueling this perfectionism rather than just innately being the kind of person that wants to do well.
0: Right And you know when you were going through that list of who do you think you are, that sounds an awful like a parental voice or Isn't a voice this? from a teacher or a coach. like how much is of that is childhood is internalized is carried? I mean I know at some point it's up to us to go okay, what is true? what is, you know, how do who do I want to be? How do I want, I, there is an accountability, right? But there is also a recognizing where it comes from. I mean, is, exactly. is that true? Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. My way of putting it is that we as children all come up with some kind of emotional survival strategy in whatever family or, or culture that we are uh, born into. And that can be a culture with um, of, of, uh, a an alcoholic family where you have to take care of your parents. So you have a very pseudo adult way of becoming, uh, into, you know, of being that can lead to perfectionism. You can be, sh- you know, screamed at that. You're never going to amount to anything that can lead to perfectionism. this destructive kind. Uh, it can be that you're the star of your family, that you are the child that never does anything wrong I feel and keeps attacked. out of trouble. <laughs>
0: Right. That's and, my and brand. You it. are you
1: are your accomplishment, and or you're yeah. really enmeshed with a parent. And so, you know, you your whole job is to please them and to meet. The needs of them and so you become this more destructive perfectionist there are lots of ways around the barn as we'd say in arkansas so there's not one way to get this to this destructive perfectionism i've had a lot of my african-american clients who have contacted me say you know if we hadn't been perfectionists we would never have gotten where we where we did get because that drive that i've got to be better than everybody else and very very pressured Getting all these cultural messages, not just African Americans, but anybody, brown or black, um, you, you know, just in, innately, you won't be enough if you're just yourself. So, right. you know, that horrible message. So, anyway, I think that the, the, the message is there are lots of ways to get there. Just growing up in a family where you're not allowed to be sad. You're not allowed to be angry. You're not allowed to admit being afraid of something. I mean, those there are myriads of those families in the United States. Now, not yes. everybody turns out to be a destructive perfectionist, but some people stay invisible and other other kinds of modes of being are chosen. But what you were talking about was I do believe it's everybody's responsibility to then say, okay, that was my childhood strategy. Is it still working or is it actually now self-sabotaging or destructive in my life i mean i was smothered as a child and so my survival strategy was to not ask for 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 permission and just (laughs) apologize and so i dove into things just very impulsively did that work for me as a adult absolutely (laughs) not i had a whole decade of chaos that i had to figure out you know i need to think before i leap and so you know, all of us have those kinds of, uh, acknowledgements that we need to look at. And yet some of these destructive perfectionists, because there is so much adoration of the perfect body and the perfect career and the perfect family and the perfect, this, and the perfect Instagram and the perfect Facebook. And, you know, we corporations law perfectionists. I want my brain surgeon to be <laughs> right. Able- you know, I want yeah. my divorce attorney to be a perfectionist. And so we don't see it as a problem. And in fact, people who are, people who are perfectionistic, frankly, sometimes say, oh, I'm not a perfectionist because I make mistakes all the time, but other people would call them perfectionists, right? But they see their, their, all their mistakes all the time. So it's really, um, a, a difficult kind of a complex issue to try to address because there are so many hurdles in addressing it. You know, the other thing that I want to say, I said it to you before we started, this is not a diagnosis. I am not narcissistic enough <laughs> to believe not quite that I have had, I have discovered some diagnosis that all of psychology and psychiatry has not discovered. That would be silly, but I do think that it's, a presentation of depression that when people go to clinicians, go to doctors, that these people will fall through the cracks. I even had a woman tell me that she's a very upbeat, very strong, tall, uh, uh, powerful looking persona. And she had a, uh, and she was coming in for depression. She was not perfectly hidden at the time, but anyway, and the doctor said, Oh, you're well you're well way too well spoken and sure of yourself to be depressed you're not depressed and you know she was thinking about dying by suicide you know now does that come out of her mouth no but we've got to look for those clues that what that people are glossing over things in mm. their lives that they have this inability to really reveal and own uh, vulnerability and it it is rampant rampant.
0: Right. And I see so many, I have so many things to add. I know like personal sure. experience, but I, I just want to mention um, on the childhood thing. I think it's mm-hmm. very, very important. And I talk about this in my book, how we have to do that exploration of okay, where did the this come from? Where did I develop this? I love how you said childhood strategy because yeah. that that's hundred percent me. I had a great strategy and childhood did not translate So well for the last two decades, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that exploration is scary, and people don't want to do it. and And my encouraging kind of note is when you do, everything becomes a little bit more clear. Because I think otherwise, there's this feeling like, why do I feel this way? Why am I this way? You know, there's this sort of external wonderment, like, what is wrong with me?
1: Yeah, great way putting it. Track
0: it back you're like, oh, nothing's wrong with me. It was just my strategy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's right. My strategy is, you know, lot. it's so funny because I've had lots of people say, oh, I read your book. I really enjoyed it. I said, well, good. What did you, what did you think about the exercises? Cause they're oh, <laughs> oh, I didn't do those. Right. I'm like, oh, really? Well, well, why not? Well, you know, I really wanted to understand what the concept was before I actually got down to doing, you know, the work. And I looked at him, I said, well, I really hope that you go back and go through all 62 (laughs) because, (laughs) you know, they were very, I tried to design them. They're just like I would do in my practice. Uh, In fact, there is a, there is a, uh, not a dismissal, but a criticism of my book on Goodreads, a, a perceived criticism where she says, I loved the first three chapters. It was like she was talking to me, but then it kind of turned into a therapy session. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's exactly
0: right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, that's yeah, what I wanted. That's <laughs> where we're going with this. It's, it's right. therapy, yeah. Oh yeah, totally. And and that's so funny because you know, we can we can see something and see ourselves in it, but mm. until we dig into it and really apply it, sure. um there's not going to be like the connection that there would be. So I love that about Your work. And then the other thing I was going to mention is the perfectly hidden part of this. And um, you don't probably know my backstory. And a lot of people on my Mm -mm. Facebook and and podcast are like, oh, here we go again. But (laughs) the quick, the quick summary is I was a very heavy drinker for 20 years. I'm five years sober um next month. That's wonderful. Um, but what that was was a symptom of this perfectionist, this um people pleasing and internalizing all my you know, I was the, you know, gifted, perfect child on the outside, but inside Mm -hmm. I was like a rebel Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I wanted to, Mm -hmm. you know, be all, and I felt all this external pressure. And so I turned it on myself and Mm -hmm. that was kind of how I dove really deeply into addiction. But I talk about, um, in my book and like on podcasts, how, as I was driving home from work, from my very well-paying law job, to my house in the suburbs and to my 2.5 kids, you know, in my SUV with my Louis Vuitton sitting in the seat next to me that I wanted to drive into a tree almost every day coming home from work.
1: I get it. And
0: you know, that plagued me for a long time, but even to rewind a little bit further, we had taken our son to, um, a child psychologist because he was tantruming (laughs) like all the time. And I have two children, 14 months apart. And Woo. now I can look back and go, okay, he just wanted attention. He had a sister that came right down the chute. You know, I can see it now. Hindsight It's beautiful. But at the time I, you know, we were like, what is wrong with this child? He's tantruming all the time. And I'll never forget the psychologist. Um, she said to me, you know, children that tantrum are typically um, children of parents of mothers who are depressed. And I was right. like, what are you talking about? No, <laughs> How dare you. Yeah. But that was when he was, you know, 2 or 3, so this was like 2008 and then my drinking problem really exacerbated over over the next few years and it was interesting to make that connection when I, it was so foreign to me. When she said that even though I had been drinking like a fish and I had dealt with depressive incidences, right? But, but for I- someone to just go yeah. You're probably depressed. And that's why he's acting this way. I was like, you know, how dare you? But then to realize later when I came full circle and thought, Oh, it's not normal to want to drive yourself into a tree every day, is it? Hmm. No. And it was this perfectly hidden thing. And I had the social media and, and this whole you know facade that everything's fine. And I wanted to drive into a tree.
1: Yes. Oh, gosh, I really, you know, back in, by the way, one of the characteristics there, 10, is this co-occurrence with eating disorders, substance abuse, true panic and anxiety disorders that actually do are clinically present um, and are just ways to try to, well, of course, the anxiety is just the worry and the need for control, but the drinking and the eating disorders are often about that, you know, I'm either trying to keep myself stable in a very self-destructive way, or I'm, you know, I've got to fight for more control. But back in May, um, I got this tragic contact from two women in Florida um, who told me, I, I can talk about this story now without crying, but I couldn't there for a while, that they'd had a friend um, who had exactly the kind of life you're talking about. Um, three wonderful children, great marriage, great career, very connected to the community. And she died by suicide and she hung herself, which is a very, uh, you know, effective way of doing that. And her husband found my book on her nightstand. Mm. And I'm like, gosh, that just fired me up even more to try to Make sure, because there is such danger in what you're talking about. I mean, I am so happy for you that I'm not sure what happened, but that you recognized those, those uh, connections and not just about your son, but about yourself. Mm-hmm. And because, and you know, I remember when they said to me, when they told me about it, they also said, and you know, come to think of it, she's not the only person we've known that has done just this same thing. And I think probably all of us by now, every person I'm not going to say in the world, that would be weird, but I know, and I know, I know probably everyone else knows someone who did not look depressed and died by suicide. Um, Someone who had just led a, a very profitable volunteer or nonprofit kind of campaign in the community, someone who was yours. Your daughter's soccer coach last year i mean someone who was at work and always asked you you know how your birthday had gone i mean it's just it, it's happening and whether we want to blame social media whether we want to blame just our culture in general whether we want to just um you know whether just you want to, gun violence i don't really care what you blame but it is happening and i i think part of it is because we don't understand that perfect looking is not perfect. And we've got to be more, um, uh, we've got to be more tuned in to what's really going on with people.
0: Yeah. And I'll tell you um, the thing that made me realize where I was at. Tell me, I'd be very interested in yeah. hearing that. Um, I was sitting in a Target parking lot. I don't know what I was doing, but I remember being in a Target parking lot and I had this very real sense, um, voice feeling overwhelmed, come over me. And it was, you know, intuition, God, whatever you want to call it, that said you are not going to be alive in one year. It was just so clear.
1: Oh like
0: gosh. the sky is blue or, you know, you're being pulled over for a, a traffic ticket. Like it was just factual laid out for me. And I was like, Oh, you're so right, God or voice. <laughs> like it was just like, mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. you're you're right. And it wasn't that, oh, I'm going to drink myself to death. It was like, that's on the table. So is like cirrhosis and so is driving yourself into that tree. It was like I had a plate of, th- of options of of you know reasons and and facts and and things that showed why I could be dead. And I knew sure. them. And it was in that moment, I thought, okay, well, you have to stop drinking like step one. And it was like a Tuesday or Wednesday. And I decided my drop dead date for the drinking, um, was Saturday. Mm -hmm. And the only reason I put it off a day was because I had to go to a work party with my husband's job. (laughs) And I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that Friday night. But it was interesting because I knew I was done. And I, on Friday at the party, I had one drink and i am not one to have ever had one drink like it was zero or 400 you know mm-hmm. so what i take out of my own story and what i like to to talk to individuals about is there is a knowing inside of us very much sometimes how how dire it's getting yes. and i think where you, you know, you said, is it social media? Is it all of this? I think the social media part of it is what is telling us your knowing is not your knowing and you need to do better and you need to work harder and you need to love more and figure out a way to find, you know, love yourself. I think that's where the disconnect is instead of, instead of really hearing that, like I heard that voice, Mm -hmm. um, I knew it to be true. And I think sometimes that internal voice is suppressed by the the pressures of social media and and the external perfectionism, that it's not okay to kind of crack or to feel like, oh, this is really bad.
1: I love that phrase, your knowing is not your knowing. I mean, that speaks so much that you, you, you can stop listening to yourself. I think, is that what you mean? You can just stop right. listening to, it's not your voice. It's, it's, it's what you are buying. It's what you are right. leaving. Right. Okay. And that, that keeps you, that is what's going to keep you afloat rather than going inward and saying, no, what is my voice? What is my reality? And, and uh, uh, yeah, that's really profound. And is
0: there a fear too, that our you know, just to kind of connect back to perfectly hidden depression, is there a sure. fear that our knowing is untrustworthy? You know, it, it, there's that too, right? That we, we can't trust ourselves with the way we're feeling.
1: Well, sure. That, that's those, well, I mean, just g- generally speaking, your emotions can lie to you for sure, but so can your thoughts and these thoughts, these self-critical thoughts often lie to you. And these, um You know, I I think the people that I'm trying to talk about and describe, they really don't have much access to their emotions, not their pain or their fear. or They're so accustomed to shaming themselves for um, uh, being afraid or admitting being tired or feeling sad. I mean, they'll just look at you and go, well, you know, I'm just not a crier or gosh, if I started feeling, if I started crying, I'd never stop. Or, um, you know, it's, that they have cut themselves off from that part of themselves. So when you say their emotions are lying to them, there's a whole end of the pool, so to speak, that they don't even swim in. Right. Um, that they, they They have a sense is there, but they don't, they don't want to swim in the deeper end. It's too dangerous. It's too murky. It might suck them under. And so they just keep going and focusing on other people's needs, focusing on the blessings in their life, focusing on what's in their head. They're extremely analytical, extremely responsible. Uh, They need a lot of control. Uh, Again, they focus on other people's needs and they discount and suppress anything having to do with pain or sadness. I I had a guy several years ago that actually had had multiple affairs and and yet he was often told in the community what a perfect family he had and now he must be so proud. And And after the third affair, he was hospitalized. It was found out and uh, he grew suicidal. And so he was hospitalized. And that's when he um, uh, came to me after that. And we spent, I know at least two and a half years. um, And he worked very hard. He had no vocabulary for anything having to do with, I want to say the darker side or the softer side or the tender side of emotion. He had absolutely no vocabulary. We started out, uh, we got off the internet, a child's vocabulary, emotional vocabulary list. And I would look at him and say, so pick the, pick the emotion that you're feeling right now. And he'd say, I think I'm afraid. And, and, and yet that would just Oh, gosh, I just said I was afraid. (laughs) I mean, it is it is almost paralyzing to them. He looked at me very early on and said, why do people want to talk to each other about the way they feel? It makes absolutely no sense to me. And so, you know, I I remember the day that um, and he was so scared of making a mistake. He had been the star of his family. He had grown up in one of those families that you don't talk about anything, Mm. you know, that's that's darker or painful. And so, um, I'll never forget the day he said to me, you know, I, I figured out, I started trying to talk to my wife who had stuck with him all through this, by the way. And, um, I was scary, but I can see now how it's valuable because it felt good for her to see me and for me to actually be present in the room with her. And these folks just, they struggle to do that and they struggle to see the value. And so it is like a whole world opening up to them when that happens.
0: Right. And the, you know, taking it back to the childhood strategy, right? Yep. There was some moment in childhood or several moments where emotions were not safe. Right. And well, yeah. that's where it was learned.
1: Sure. I mean, if I am, if I walk in and I have a cut on my arm and you say rub some dirt in it, then I'm going to go to my room and decide, you know, I don't need anybody to hold me and say, it's going to be okay. And the more that happens, the more you decide, doesn't matter. I don't need that. You protect yourself. It's your strategy to say, well, if it's not available, then I don't need it. Mm. Not, not, not going to ask for it. Not going to look for it in somebody else. Um, so it's, it's the way you shore yourself up. And it's the way
0: you survive as right? the way for you survive.
1: Exactly. And um, so I really think that, uh, you know, it it blows me away being a psychologist, sometimes how people will say, well, what do you mean something that happened when I was four or six, you know, if the neighborhood, neighborhood kids used to bully me, or they pull down my pants, or they, You know, they made fun of something. You know, what are you saying that that made a difference in my life? I'm a 47-year-old man or a 35-year-old woman now. I've got a family of my own. I've got a great job. And yet, when when I then pull that childhood experience out, most dramatic example is perhaps a man who said, um, yeah, my mom used to, and he was laughing, just hilariously laughing, saying, Yeah, my mom used to throw rocks at me and say I'd never mount anything. I said, Don't you have a grandson? He had just retired and was falling apart, by the way. And um, he said, Yeah, he's like six. I said, So let's get him out here in the front yard and let's you and I go get some big stones and throw them at them, at him and say, You're not gonna, you're not gonna mount anything, you little whatever. And he and he said, It was just incredulous. No, I wouldn't do that. And I said, so you were that little boy. You, you, it happened all the time. So you grew immune to it. You expected it from your mom, but that doesn't mean that at its very beginning, it didn't shock you and scare you. And you had to just all that sink into a place where you would never go. Hmm. And so, and you're still not going there. Until you started working with me. And now that you know, if you're willing, I'm willing, which I am, we're gonna we're gonna go there. And he did great work.
0: And you know, anyone watching is like,
1: Yeah, I don't want to go there. No,
0: but why should we like let's talk about the freedom that's on the other side of getting the head out of the sand and and figuring out what happened. And like, let's talk about the, the freedom that is the exploration, seeing the truth and then taking action to move forward.
1: Sure. Um, well, I, I have panic disorder. I've had panic attacks since I was in my late twenties. I mean, big ones like performance anxiety, like, and I was a jingle singer at the time. And so I would be, they'd say, Hey, Margaret, try out the solo. And i I'd been a singer all my life and I never had any problem. And I would get up to the microphone and I'd start shaking and it was horrible. And so, you know, I wanted to deny it all. I would say, oh, that's just weird. I'm not eating enough. I'm dehydrated. I, you know, whatever it happened to be. And then slowly someone finally said to me, you know, Margaret, I I said, I want to get rid of these panic attacks. And they said, I'm not going to help you do that. And I said, why not? And he said, Because your panic disorder is just as much a part of you as the part that you don't mind other people seeing. It's just, you don't like other people seeing it. It's, Mm. it's vulnerable, very physically, very emotionally. And when he said that things began to switch for me, things began to switch. And I was, this was before I was a psychologist. It was like, oh, if I understand and accept that I have a vulnerability. Maybe I have a bad temper. Maybe I have panic attacks. Maybe I have, maybe I got hurt because my cousin sexually abused me. Maybe, and maybe I don't trust anybody anymore. Or maybe I, you know, I had a man whose grandfather had sexually abused him and then he had a brother die in his, while he was watching over the brother and his parents, uh, blamed him. I've had women who, you know, were, were sexually abused and, and it was just over and over again in their families and they shut down and shut down and shut down and shut down. And so, um, they've gone on to create chaos when you can accept that that was hurtful and begin to have compassion for yourself then you can actually begin to work with that. And that's where the openness comes in because you don't just go, well, okay, I got hurt and I have to accept it. You don't resign yourself to it. If you accept its presence and its impact, then you can begin to work with it and manage it. And your life opens up. When I began admitting to, it was slow, but sure. I was I was horrified that i had panic disorder um but when i began saying yeah i might stand up here and shake here in a second (laughs) sometimes i did and sometimes have to grab a chair and sit down yeah you know what it wasn't the end of my career nor was the end of my life and i could just begin to manage it better and mostly i was ashamed of it because of the things that it meant to me which it meant that i looked out of control and i've always needed to look in control um and all the other things. So there were, it wasn't just about the panic, but when people can recognize that they are still valuable and worthwhile, no matter what happened to them, or perhaps something they did themselves, Mm. um, you know, shame, people think that if they shame themselves enough for something that it will prevent them from doing shame is like a good conscience. Shame is not a good conscience. Shame is carrying forward years and years or months and months of things that you feel regret for, and then you know what is going to happen, you're much more likely to go out and do that same thing again. But if you admit your shame, if you accept, yes. I mean, I've been divorced twice. I'm not proud of that. I've been married now for 30 years, but I really created a bunch of chaos in my 20s. I, I drug that shame around with me for years and I made bad choices because I did it. So when I finally said I was stupid, I was naive, I was selfish, I was, I needed control. A lot of these things I could say, okay, it's not going to govern my choices anymore. I just, that is just as much a part of me as it's a fact about me that is not it doesn't have to shame me i'm just i can be open about it
0: right and it is that sort of announcing like when you when you walk into a room and you're like i may need to sit down here in a minute like that yeah. that is clearing the air for the expectations that you're putting on yourself too like you're you're like okay i don't have any expectations i'm just going to do the best mm-hmm. i can and um, I always joke when I was practicing law that I would get up in front of a judge and I would have to clear the air because I would be so nervous. And so I would make a joke sure. to the judge all the time. Like if it was Valentine's day, I was like, happy Valentine's day, your honor. And, and he's like, happy Valentine's Day, Miss Atwood. can we get on? You know, but I would always make this joke because I had to clear the air because I had the same thing. I would get to the point where I couldn't, you know, you just can't breathe. <laughs> because you're so nervous and so like clearing the air or just expecting that I'm going to make a joke about something was that letting go of that shame that oh man I'm like not good at this but then when once I started making the jokes it became lighter and it was like admitting okay I'm not this I'm not this perfect, smart lawyer up here. Cause if I go out there serious, like I'm taking my, and I, so I made a joke. I became more like lighthearted about things. And so I think it's the sharing of stories and, and the being vulnerable that is frightening, but it is also the thing that sets us free and allows us to help other people find their freedom too, by saying I've been it's, there.
1: It's just amazing. I mean, I, um, you know, the very sad part of that story that I told you that I heard in May is that this woman actually did try to get help and she wasn't believed because again, she didn't look bad enough. And so she just let that fall back into, you know, this suppressed state and gradually it just overwhelmed her and people don't realize how, not being seen for who you really are not being seen for both your strengths and your vulnerabilities can be so damaging it can be so lonely in fact i had about 60 people reach out to me i was trying to figure this out for two or three years so i would write blog posts about it and say what what kind of feedback do i get here and at the bottom of the of the blog post i would have if you're interested in talking with me about your story and you identify please please contact me at my email. Well, I had a bunch of people do that, much to my surprise. A brain surgeon, a a motivational speaker, a woman who was in charge of a whole state's advertising campaign, campaign. I mean, you talk about every field. I had it. And I asked them, why would you reach out to a perfect stranger? Some of them were in their garages whispering because they didn't want anybody to hear them. You know, some people were in their offices with the doors closed and to a T Meredith, they said, because we would not wish this life on anyone. Mm -hmm. It is so lonely and so despairing. And you have to fight off feelings of wanting it all to end all the time. And, and I was so touched by that because those people know the prison that this can be. Um, And so, you know, I can't, I, I've, I'm not trying to, to, to vaunt my work or whatever, but I have had more than one person say, you know, I am no longer the same person because of this work. And I, I like my life so much more. I'm not scared of life anymore. I don't feel like I have to worry that I'm going to get found out. Mm-hmm. Um, I can just be me. I can tell my supervisor, you know, I can't get that done this week with all that's on my plate. Either I have to take something off or I need help. Uh, you can tell someone who says, well, would you mind, uh, chairing this committee? You, go, you know, this is my son's senior year in high school and I'm just not willing to do that. You can right. say no, you can say yes, but with restrictions, you can say, um, maybe next year. I mean, it just frees you up to think about not only the people you love, but your own needs and values.
0: Yes. Yes. And I think, I mean, I'm glad we're live right now because I think someone's trying to break into my room. (laughs) He might be 13 with a major complaint, like the Wi-Fi. So just just in case, you know, real world here. Um, Well, this was so great. So great. Um, Margaret. I was about to call you doctor, but she told me to call you. Oh, Margaret. That's
1: all right. You know, I'll respond.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, tell everyone where they can find your book sure. and more information because you have a podcast too.
1: I do. My podcast is called the self-work podcast. And, um, actually I I'm about to, I'm, I'm coming close to 2 million downloads on that sucker. Nice. So that's really incredible. I
0: know what kind and of accomplishment 200 items. episodes.
1: So, and I don't just talk about perfectly hidden depression. It is a It is all about how to, you know, some of the issues about your own self-work. And I've been doing it for four years. So it's really, I love doing it. Then my um, website is drmargaretrutherford.com, quite creatively. I'm on Instagram. (laughs) Uh, The book is on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can get it straight from the publisher at New Harbinger Publishing. You can get it at Um, perfectlyhiddendepression.com. So that's how I can be reached. So. Very nice. I'd love it. Well,
0: thank you so much for your time sure, today. Thank you. And since this is the first time I've done this Facebook Live, I'm just going to log off the Zoom. Okay. Sounds I good. would say goodbye. <laughs> and We could chat, but I'm scared that I'll just keep going. So um but so thank your you so Facebook,
1: much for- your Facebook, I want to go grab it. Um so what's your Facebook? Um,
0: um Meredith Atwood, author and speaker.
1: Meredith Atwood, author and speaker. Got it. Got it. And
0: I will tag you in that too. And
1: thanks to anybody who's been listening on Facebook. We appreciate it.
0: Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for experimenting with me. (laughs)
1: Uh, Of course. I'm all about that. Doesn't have to be perfect, you know?
0: I know. That's (laughs) right. That's right. Well, take care. It's been a
1: pleasure. Thank you so very much.